You're listening to The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This audiobook is brought to you by Kriti and it's narrated by Aishwarya. Chapter 1 In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all people in this world haven't had the advantages that you had. He didn't say anymore, but we always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious nature to me and also made me the victims of not a few veteran bores. The abnormal mind is quick to detect and attach itself to its quality when it appears in a normal person. And so, it came about that in college that I was unjustly accused for being a politician because I was privity to the secret grieve of wild unknown men. Most of the confidences were unsought frequently. I have faged asleep, preoccupation or a hostile liberty when I realized by some unmistakable sign that had an intimate relevation was quivering over the horizon. For the intimate relevation of young men, or at least the term in which they express them, are usually plagiaristic and made by obvious suppressions. Reserving judgment is a matter of infinite hope. I am still a little afraid of missing something if I forget that, as my father snobbishly suggested, and I snobbishly repeat, a sense of the fundamental decencies is parceled out unequally at birth. And after boasting this way of my tolerance, I come to the admission that it has a limit. Conduct may be founded on a hard rock or the wet marshes, but after a certain point, I don't care what it's founded on. When I came back from East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform and a sort of moral attention forever. I wanted no more riteous exertion with privileged glimpses into the human heart. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was extempt from my reaction Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scrawn. If personality is an unbroken series of successful gesture, that there were something gorgeous about him, some heightened sensitivity to the promise of life, as if he were related to one of the integrate machine that register earthquake 10,000 miles away. This responsiveness has nothing to do with that flabby impersonality which is dignified under the name of creative temperament. It was extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic dreadishness such as have never found in any other person and which is not likely that I shall ever find again. No Gatsby turned out all right at the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby, what I foul does floated in the wake of his dream that temporarily closed out of my interest in abortive sorrows and short-winded elation of men. My family have been prominent, well-to-do people in this middle western city for three generations. The Caribbeans are something of a clan and we have a tradition that we descended from the Dukes of Bucklick. But the actual founder of my line was my grandfather's brother, who came here in 51, set a substitute to the Civil War and started the wholesale hardware business that my father carries on today. I never saw this great uncle, 
but I'm supposed to look like him with special reference to the rather hard-boiled painting that hangs in father's office. I graduated from New Haven in 1915, just a quarter of century after my father, and a little later I participated in the delayed Teutonic migration known as the Great War. I enjoyed the counter-raid so thoroughly that I came back restless. Instead of being the warm center of the world, the Middle West now seemed like the raged edge of universe. So I decided to go east and learn the bond business. Everybody I knew was in the bond business, so I suppose it could be a support one more single man. All my aunts and uncles talked it over as if they were choosing a prep school for me, and finally said yes with very grieved, hesitant faces. Father agreed to finance me for a year, and after various delay, I came east permanently. I thought in the spring of twenty-two, maybe. The practical thing was to find rooms in the city, but it was a warm season, and I had just left a country of wide lawns and friendly trees. So when a young man at the office suggested that we can take house together in a community town, it sounded like a great idea. He found the house, a weather-beaten cardboard bungalow, at an eight month, but at the last minute, from the firm ordered him to the Washington, and I went out to the country alone. I had a dog at least. I had him for a few days until he ran away, and an old Dutch and a Finnish woman who made my bed and cooked breakfast and muttered Finnish wisdom to herself over the electric stove. It was lonely for a day or so until one morning, some man more recently arrived than I stopped me on the road. How do you get to the West Egg Village? He asked helplessly. I told him, and. As I walked on, I was lonely no longer. I was a guide, a pathfinder, and an original settler. He had casually conferred me on the freedom of the neighborhood, and so, with the sunshine and great burst of leaves growing on the trees, just as a thing go in the fast movies, I had that familiar conviction that life was beginning over again with the summer. There was so much to read for one thing. And so much fine health to be pulled down out of the young, breath-giving air. I bought a dozen volume of banking and credit and investment securities, and they stood on my shelf in dread and gold like new money from a mint, promising to unfold the shining secret that only Midas and Morgan and Macu knew. And I had the high intention of reading many other books beside. I was rather literary in college one year. And I wrote a series of very solemn and obvious editorials for the Yale News. And now I was going to bring back all such things into my life and become against the most limited of all specialists, the well-rounded men. This isn't just an epigram life, which is more successful looked at from a single window, after all. It was a matter of chance that I should have rented a house in one of the strangest communities in North America. It was on that slender, radius island which extends itself due east of New York, and where there are, among other natural curiosities, two unusual formation of land. Twenty miles from the city, a pair of enormous egg, identical in contour and separated only by a courteous bay, jut out into the most domesticated body of salt water in the Western Hemisphere, the Great Wet Barren of Long Island Sound. There are not perfect oval-like eggs in the Columbus story. 
They are both crushed flat at the contact end, but their physical resemblance must be a source of perpetual wonder to the gulls that fly overhead. To the wingless or more interesting phenomenon is their dissimilarity in every particular except shape and size. I lived at West Egg, the well, the less fashionable of the two, though this is the most superficial tag to express the bizarre and not a little sinister contrast between them. My house was at the very tip of the egg, only 50 yards from the sound and squeezed between the two huge places that rented for 12 or 15,000 a season. The one on my right was a colossal affair by a standard. It was a factual imitation of some hotel deville in Normandy, with a tower on one side, spanking new under a thin bed of raw ivy and a marble swimming pool and more than 40 acres of lawn and garden. It was Gatsby Mansion, or rather, as I didn't know Mr. Gatsby, it was mansion inhibited by a gentleman of that name. My own house was an eyesore, but it was a small eyesore and it had been overlooked so I had a view of the water, a partial view of my neighbor's lawn and the consolidating proximity of the milliner, all for $80 a month. Across the courteous bay, the white palace of fashionable East Air glittered along the water and the history of the summer really begins on the evening. I drove over there to have dinner with Tom Buckhans. Daisy was my second cousin once removed, and I know Tom in college, and just after the war, I spent two days with them in Chicago. Her husband, among various physical accomplishments, has been one of the most powerful ends that ever played football at New Haven, a national figure in a way, one of those men who reached such an acute limited excellence at 21 that everything afterwards savours of anticlimax. His family were enormously wealthy. Even in college, his freedom with money was a matter for reapproach. But now, he'd left Chicago and came east in a fashion that rather took your breath away. For instance, he brought down a string of polo ponies from Lake Forest. It was hard to realize that a man in my own religion and my generation was wealthy enough to do that. Why they came east, I don't know. They had spent a year in France for no particular reason and they drifted here and there unrestfully wherever people played polo and were rich together. This was a permanent move, said Daisy over the telephone. But I didn't believe it. I had no insight into Daisy's heart. But I felt that Tom would drift on forever seeking, a little wistful for a dramatic turbulence of some irrecoverable football game. And so, it happened that on a warm windy evening and I drove over to East Egg to see two old friends whom I scarcely knew at all. Their house was even more elaborate than I expected, a cheerful red and white Georgian coronal mansion overlooking the bay. The lawn started at the beach and ran downwards toward the front door for a quarter of mile, jumping over sundials and brick walks and burning garden, finally, when it reaches the house, drifting after the side in bright wine as thought from the momentum of its run. The front was broken by a line of French windows, glowing now with reflected gold and wide open to the warm windy afternoon, and Tom Bakena, his riding clothes, was standing with his legs apart on the front porch. He has changed since his new heaven years.
Now, he was a sturdy, straw-haired man of thirty, with a rather hard mouth and surplus manner. Two shining arrogant eyes had established a dominance over his face and gave him the appearance of always leaning aggressively forward. Not even the effeminate swank of his riding cloth could hide the enormous power of that body. He seemed to fulfill those glittering boots until they straightened the top blazing and you could see a great pack of muscle shifting when his shoulder moved under his thin coat. It was a body capable of enormous leverage, a cruel body. His speaking voice, a gruff husky tender, added to the impression of factious he conveyed. There was a touch of parental content in it. Even towards people he liked, and there were men at New Heaven who had hated his guts. Now, don't take my opinion of these matters in final. He seemed to say, just because I'm stronger and more of a man than you are. We were in the same senior society, and while we never intimate that I've always had the impression that he approved of me and wanted me to like him with some harsh, deficient witsful of his own. We walked for a few minutes on a sunny porch. I've got a nice place here, he said, his eyes flashing about the restlessly. Turning me around by one arm, he moved a broad flat hand along the front vista, including in its sweep a sunken Italian garden, a half acre of deep, pungent roses, and a snub-nosed motorboat that pumped the tide offshore. It belonged to Demain, the oilman. He returned me around again, politely and abruptly. We'll go inside. We walked through a high hallway into a bright, rosy-colored space, fragilely bound into the house by French windows at either end. The windows were ajar and gleaming white against the fresh grass outside that seemed to grow a little way into the house. A breeze blew through the room, blew curtains in at one end and out the other like pale flags, twisting them up towards the frosted wedding cake of the ceiling, and then rippled over the wine-colored rug, making a shadow on it as wind does on the sea. The only completely stationary object in the room was an enormous couch on which two young women were bayored up as though upon an arcade balloon. They were both in white and their dresses were rippling and fluttering as if they had just been blown back in after a short flight around the house. I must have stood for a few months listening to the whip and snap of the curtains and the grown picture on the wall. Then there was a boom as Tom Buchan shut the rear window and the caught wind died out about the room. And the curtains and the rugs and the two young women ballooned slowly to the floor. The younger of the two was a stranger to me. She was extended fully length at her end of the divan, completely motionless, and with a chine raised a little as if she were balancing something on it which was quite likely to fall. If she saw me out of the corner of her eyes, she gave no hint to it. Indeed, I was almost surprised into murmuring an apology for having disturbed her by coming in. The other girl, Daisy, made an attempt to rise, she leaned slightly forward with a conscious expression, then she laughed an absurd charming little laugh, and I laughed too and came forward into the room. I'm paralyzed with happiness. She laughed again as if she said something very witty and held my hand for a moment. Looking up into my face, 
promising that there were no one in the world she so much wanted to see. That was a way she had. She entered in a murmur that the surname of a balancing girl was Baker. I've heard it, said the daisy's murmur, was the only to make people lean towards her, and irrelevant circumstances that made it no less charming. At any rate, Miss Baker's lips fluttered. She nodded at me almost imperceptibly and then quickly tied her head back again. The object she was balancing had obviously tottered a little and given her something of a fright. Again, a sort of apology arise to my lips. Almost an exhibition of complete self-sufficiency rose a stunned tribute from me. I looked back at my cousin, who began to ask me questions in a low, thrilling voice. It was the kind of voice that the year follows up and down, as if each speech is an arrangement of notes that will never be played again. Her face was sad and lovely, with bright things in it, bright eyes and a bright passionate mouth. But there was an excitement in her voice that men who cared for her found difficult to forget. A singing compulsion, a whispered listen, a promise that she had done gay. Exciting things such as wild sins and that they were gay, exciting things hovering in the next hour. I told her how I had stopped off in Chicago for a day on my way east and how dozen of people had sent their love through me. Do they miss me? She cried ecstatically. The whole town is desolate. All the cars have left rare veil painted black as a morning breath and there's persistent veil all night along the North Shore. How gorgeous! Let's go back, Tom. Tomorrow. Then she added irrelevantly. You ought to see that baby. I'd like to. She's asleep. She's three year old. Haven't you ever seen her? Never. Well, you ought to see her. She's Tom Bucknan, who had been hovering restlessly about the room, stopped and rest his hand on my shoulder. What are you doing, Nick? I'm a bond man. Who with? I told him. Never heard of them, he remarked decisively. This annoyed me. You will, I answered shortly. You will, if you stay in the East. Ho, oh, I'll stay in the East. Don't you worry, he said, glancing at Daisy and then back at me as if he were allowed for something more. I'd be good damned fool to live anywhere else. At this point, Miss Baker said, absolutely, with such suddenness that I started it was the first word she has uttered since I came into the room. Evidently, it surprised her as much as it did me. For she yawned and with a series of rapid dwept moment stood up into the room. I'm stiff, she complained. I've been lying on that sofa for long as I can remember. Don't look at me, Daisy distorted. I've been trying to get you to New York all afternoon. No, thanks, said Miss Baker to the four cocktails just in front of the pantry. I'm absolutely in training. Her host looked at her incredulously. You are. He took down his drink as if it were a drop in the bottom of a glass. How you would ever get anything done is beyond me. I looked at Miss Baker, wondering what it was she got down. I enjoyed looking at her. She was slender, small-breasted girl with an erect carriage which she actured by throwing her body backward at the shoulder like a young cadet. Her grey sun-strained eyes 
looked back at me with polite reciprocal curiosity out of a wan charming discontent face it occurred to me now that i've seen her or a picture of her somewhere before you live in west egg she remarked contemptuously i know somebody there i do not know a single you must know gatsby gatsby demanded daisy what gatsby before i could reply that he was my neighbor dinner was announced wedging his tense arm imperatively under mine tom buckenen compelled me from the room as though he was moving with the checker to another square slenderly languishly their hands set lightly on their hips the two young women preceded us out on a rosy colored porch open towards the sunset where four candles flickered on the table in the diminished wind why candles objected daisy frowningly she snapped them out with her fingers in two weeks it will be the longest day in the year she looked at us all radiantly do you always watch for the longest day of the year and then miss it i always watch for the longest day in the year and then miss it we ought to plan something yawned miss baker sitting down at the table as if she were getting into bed all right said daisy what will plan she turned to me helplessly what do people plan before i answer her eyes fastened with an awe expression on her little finger look she complained i hurt it we all looked the uncle was black and blue you did it tom she said acquisingly i know you didn't mean to do it but you did do it that's what i get from a marrying a brute of a man a great big huckling physical specimen of i hate that would hulking objected tom crossly even in kidding hulking insisted daisy sometimes she and miss baker talked at once unobstructively and with a bantering inquences that was never quite chatter that was a cool as their wide dresses and their impersonal eyes in the absence of all desire they were here and they accepted tom and me making only a polite pleasant effort to enter or to be entertained they knew that presently dinner would be over and little later the evening too would be over and casually put away it was sharply different from the best where an evening was hurried from face to face towards the clothes in a continuously disappointing anticipator or else in sheer nervous dread of the moment itself you make me feel uncivilized daisy i confess on my second glass of corky but rather impressive claret can't you talk about crops or something i meant nothing in particular by this remark but it was taken up in an unexpected way civilization's going to be pieces broken up tom violently i've got to be terrible pessimist about things have you read the rise of colored empires by this man godard why no i answered rather surprised by his tone well it's a fine book and everybody ought to read it the idea is if we don't look out the white race will be utterly submerged it's all scientific stuff it's been proven tom's getting very profound said daisy with an expression of unthoughtful sadness he reads deep books with long words in them what was the word we well these books are all scientific insisted tom glancing at her impatiently this fellow has worked out the whole thing it's up to us who has the dominant race 
to watch out or these other rays will have no control of our things we got to beat them down whispered daisy winking ferociously towards the fervent sun you ought to live in california began miss baker but tom interrupted by her shifting her heavily in his armchair this idea is that we are nordus i am and you are and you are after an infinitesimal hesitation he included daisy with a slight nod and she winkled at me again and we produced all the things that go to make civilization science and art and all that do you see there was something pathetic in his concentration as if his complimency more acute than of old was not enough to him any more when almost immediately the telephone rang inside and the butler left the porch daisy seized up the momentary interruption and leaned towards me i'll tell you a family secret she whispered enthusiastically it's about the butler nose do you want to hear about the butler nose that's why i came over tonight well he wasn't always a butler he used to be the silver polisher for some people in new york that had a silver service for 200 people he had to polish it from the morning till night until finally it began to affect his nose things went bad towards suggested miss baker yes things went from bad to worse until finally he had to give up his position for a moment the last sunshine fell with a romantic affection upon her glowing face her voice compelled me forward breathlessly as i listened then the glow faded each light descending her with lingering regret like children leaving a pleasant street at dusk the butler came back and murmured something close to tom's ears whispering tom front pushed back his chair and without a word went inside and of his absence quickened something within her daisy leaned forward again her voice glowing and singing i love to see you at my table nick you remind me of a rose an absolute rose doesn't he she turned to miss baker for confirmation an absolute rose this was untrue i'm not even fainting like a rose she was only intemperizing but a stirring warmth flowed from her as if her heart was trying to come out to you concealed in one of those breathless thrilling words then suddenly she threw up her napkin on the table and excused herself and went into the house miss baker and i exchanged a short glance consciously devoid of meaning i was about to speak when she sat up alternatively and said shh in a warming tone a subdued impassionate murmur was audible in the room beyond and miss baker leaned forward unashamed trying to hear the murmur trembled on the verge of the coherence sank down mounted excitedly and then ceased altogether this mr gatsby you spoke of is is my neighbor i began don't talk i want to hear what happens is something happening i inquired innocently you mean to say you don't know said miss baker honestly surprised i thought everybody knew i don't why she said hesitantly tom got some women in new york got some women i repeatedly blanked miss baker nodded she might have the decency not to telephone him at a dinner time 
don't you think almost before i had grasped her meaning there was the flutter of dress and the crunch of leather boots and tom and daisy were back at the table it couldn't be helped cried daisy with tense gently she sat down glanced searchingly at mrs baker and then at me and continued i looked outdoors for a minute and it's very romantic outdoor there's a bird on the lawn that i think must be the nightingale come over on the cornet or white star line he's singing away her voice sang it's romantic isn't it tom very romantic he said and then miserably to me if it's light enough after dinner i want to take you down to the stable the telephone rang inside staringly and as daisy shook her head deceptively at tom the subject of the stables in fact all subjects vanished into air among the broken fragments of the last 5 minutes at table i remember the candles being lit again pointlessly and i was conscious of wanting to look squarely at everyone and yet to avoid all eyes i couldn't guess what daisy and tom were thinking but i doubt if her miss bacon who seemed to have the master of certain hearts clubture was able to utterly put his fifth gestural metallic urgency out of mind to a certain temperament the situation might have seen indistinguishly my own instinct was to telephone immediately for the police the horses needed to stay were not mentioned again tom and miss baker with several feet of twilight between them strolled back into the library as if to a wiggle beside a perfectly tangled body while trying to look pleasantly interested and little deaf i followed daisy around a chain of connecting verandas to the porch in front it's deep gloom we sat down side by side on a wicker settle daisy took her face in her hands as if feeling its lovely shape and her eyes moved gradually out into the velvet dusk i saw the turbulent emotion possessed her so i asked what i thought would be some sedative question about her little girl we don't know each other very well nick she said suddenly even if we are cousins you didn't come to my wedding i wasn't back from the war that's true she hesitated well i had a very bad time nick and i'm pretty cynical about everything evidently she had reason to be i waited but she didn't say any more and after a moment i returned rather feebly to the subject of her daughter i suppose she talks and eats and everything oh yes she looked at me absently listen nick let me tell you what i said when she was born would you like to hear very much i'll show you how i gotten to feel about things well she was less than an hour old and tom was god knows where i woke up out of the ether with an utterly abandoned feeling and asked the nurse right away whether it was a boy or a girl she told me it was a girl and so i turned my head away and wept all right i said i'm glad it's a girl and i hope she'll be the fool that's the best thing a girl can be in this world a beautiful little fool you see i think everything's terrible anyway she went on in a convinced way everybody thinks so the most advanced people and i know i've been everywhere and seen everything and done everything her eyes flashed around her in a definite way rather like tom's and she laughed with thrilling scorn sophisticated god 
I am sophisticated. The instant her voice broke off, ceasing to compel my attention, my belief, I felt the basic insecurity of what she has said. It made me uneasy, as though the whole evening had been trick on some sort of exact a contributory emotion from me. I waited, and sure enough in a moment, she looked at me with an absolute scrim of her lovely face, as if she had asserted her membership in a rather disguised secret society to which she and Tom belonged. Inside, the crimson room bloomed with light. Tom and Miss Baker sat at either end of long couch and she read aloud to him from the Saturday evening post the word, murmurs and unflicted, running together in a soothing tone. The lamplight, bright on his boot and dull on the autumn leaf yellow of her air, glint upon the papers as she turned a paper with a flutter of slender music in her arms. When we came in, she held a silent for a moment with a lifted hand. To be continued, she said, tossing the magazine on the table in our very next issue. Her body asserted itself with a restless movement of her knee and she stood up. Ten o'clock, she remarked, apparently finding the time on the ceiling. Time for this good girl to go to bed. Jordan's going to play in the tournament tomorrow, explained Daisy, over at Wedgechecker. Who are you, Jordan Baker? I knew. Now why her face was familiar. Its pleasant contemptuous expression had looked out at me from many rotover picture of sporting life at Ashville and Hot Spring in Palm Beach. I had heard some story of her too. A critical, unpleasant story, but what it was I had forgotten long ago. Good night, she said softly. Wake me at eight, won't you? If you get up, I will. Good night, Mr. Caraway. See you anon. Of course you will, confirmed Daisy. In fact, I think I'll arrange a marriage. Come over often, Nick, and I'll sort off a fling together. You know lock up accidentally in luncheon cotslet and push you to a sea in a boat and all that a sort of thing. Good night, called Mrs. Baker from the stair. I haven't heard a word. She's a nice girl, said Tom after a moment. They ought to let her run around the country this way. We ought to, inquired Daisy coldly. Her family? Her family is one aunt about a thousand year old. Besides, Nick's going to look after her, aren't you, Nick? She's going to spend a lot of week out here this summer. I think the home influence will be very good for her. Daisy and Tom looked at each other for a moment in silence. Is she from New York? I asked quickly. From Lossville, a white girlhood was passed together there. A beautiful white. Did you give Nick a little heart-to-heart -heart talk in a veranda? Demanded Tom suddenly. Did I? She looked at me. I can't seem to remember, but I think we talked about the Norkirk race. Yes, I'm sure we did. It's a sort of crept upon us and first thing, you know. Don't believe everything you hear, Nick, he advised me. I said lightly that I heard nothing at all, and a few minutes later, I got up to go home. They came to the door with me and stood side by side in a cheerful square of light. As I started my motor, Daisy pretemporarily called me wait. I forget to ask you something, and it's important. We heard you were engaged to a girl out west. That's right, said Tom kindly. 
We hear that you were engaged. It's liable. I'm too poor. But we heard it, insisted Daisy, surprising me by opening up again in a flurry-like way. We heard it from three people, so it must be true. Of course I knew what they were referring to, but I wasn't even waked engaged. The fact that gossip has published the bands was one of the reasons I had come east. You can't stop going with an old friend on account of rumors. And on the other hand, I had no intention of being rumored into marriage. Their interest rather touched me and made them less remotely rich nevertheless. I was confused and a little disguised as I drove away. It seemed to me that the thing for Daisy to do was to rush out of the house, child in arms, but apparently there were no such intention in her head. As for Tom, the fact that he had some women in New York was really less surprising than he had been depressed by a book. Something was making him nibble at the edge of staple ideas, affis, this sturdy physical egosum no longer nourished his pre-temporary hut. Already it was deep summer on roadhouse roof and in front of vague side garage where new red petrol pumps sat out in pools of light and when I reached my estate at West Egg, I ran the car under its shed and sat for a while on an abandoned grass loader in the yard. The wind had blown off, leaving a loud, bright night with wings beating in the trees and a persistent organ sound as the full bellows of the earth blew the frog full of life. The sill hoof of a moving cat wavered across the moonlight and turning my head to watch it. I saw that it was my neighbor's mansion and was standing with his hands in his pocket regarding the silver peppers of the star. Something in this leisurely moment and the speculous position of his feet upon the lawn suggested that it was Mr. Gatsby himself come out to determine what share was his of a local heaven. I decided to call to him. Miss Baker had mentioned him at dinner and that would do for an introduction. But I didn't call to him, for he had given a sudden intimation that he was contented to be alone. He stretched out his arms towards the dark water in a curious way. And far as I was from him, I could have sworn him and he was trembling. Involuntarily, I glanced seaward and distinguished nothing except a single green light, minute and far away, that might have been the end of a dock. When I looked once more for Gatsby, he had vanished, and I was alone again in a unique darkness.